Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Education Director and Lead Jumps Coach at Altis, Dan Path. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Vald Performance, the team behind the Nordboard hamstring testing system. So the Nordboard is the fastest and easiest and most accurate way to measure hamstring strength in under 90 seconds. So the Nordboard gives the right information so you can make the right decisions for your players at the right time. So it's already in use by over half the Premier League uh, and dozens of other elite teams around the world. Uh, so the Nordboard testing system is the is on its way to becoming the gold standard for measuring and monitoring hamstring strength. So if you are interested in getting to know anything more about the Nordboard, you can visit Vald Performance, that's V-A-L-D performance.com to find out more. Thanks for tuning in to episode 87 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I'm going to keep this intro unusually short and just say, I hope you enjoyed the chat with Dan Paff absolute legend uh, in the world of track and field I never had as much input from uh, from listeners on Twitter as I did this time when I put the request out for questions for Dan so this episode is pretty much all questions or it is actually all questions from people that got in touch on Twitter so thank you to all of them that did just before I get into the interview with Dan uh, we've got a nice little warm up from Kevin at Coach Me Plus so if you remember a couple of weeks ago uh, on episode 85, Kevin did part one of a part two series on uh, using questionnaires uh, as, a, as a monitoring tool. So today is part two. So that's a nice little walk from Kevin. So it's a couple of minutes, uh, which is very interesting uh, as always from the guys at Coach Me Plus. So enjoy the first little segment with Kevin uh, and enjoy the next 40 minutes with the legend Dan Paff. So in the first part of our uh, wellness questionnaire uh, podcast, we talked about the McLean research uh, that supported um, subjective questionnaires and objective information. We talked about the five questions that you might ask in a questionnaire, including fatigue, sleep, muscle soreness, stress, and mood level. And we talked about the scale, the scale being one to five. And um, the one thing that we see with a lot of different sports science programs is a simple math problem. Uh, you take the values and you say, well, one through 25 is the best score that you can have. So if everybody's 25, then they're all great. And the reality is, is that you have subjective indicators here. And what you want to do is you want to normalize the data for the individual instead of trying to score everybody the same. So we're going to get into a little bit of math here and actually talk about how we're going to do that. What we're going to do is we're going to create a z-score value. And we do z-score values instead of standard deviation changes because of the difference in somebody who might have high variance. And I'll talk about that in a second. But first, what you want to do is you want to take your um, values and do a moving average. And the moving average might be the last six data values that you had. So you have a six-day moving average from the previous six data points. You store that as a value. The next is you take a standard deviation 
moving average. And basically, the moving standard deviation is the same uh, type of thing. You take the standard deviation score from the last six values. And then finally, you get a z-score by um, subtracting the moving average from the current value and dividing that by the moving standard deviation. So we take a look at three different athletes who have uh, a difference in the way that they actually score their data. One of them is highly optimistic, and he scores a lot of fours and fives. The other one is highly pessimistic, scores a lot of ones and twos. And my third athlete is widely variant. He scores a lot of ones and fives. Now, if we were just using standard deviation change, the variance wouldn't be accounted for. So z-scores help flatten out that data set so you can look for the changes in the z-score instead of looking for the changes in those ones and fives. Uh, our friend Matt Holly at Notre Dame actually uses a color code for getting warnings on that z-score once he has them. Uh, basically, he goes with the stoplight approach, the green, red, and yellow. Um, anything over a 0.5 is a good change. It's a green. Anything that's between a 0.5 and a negative 0.5 stays in the gray. It's not enough to be concerned about. Anything between a negative 0.5 and negative 1.5 is yellow. That's my area of concern and warning. And then finally, anything below a negative 1.5 is red. That's where I step in and have my intervention. When you normalize your data and you color code based on something that is flattened out for all different cases for subjective indicators, now you can actually make judgment calls on the data instead of just saying, I'm going to look at the numbers from 1 to 5 or 1 to 25. Z-scores are your key to helping understand this information in a much better way. To get your weekly dose of applied sports science updates, go to CoachMePlus.com and subscribe to our weekly newsletter. That's CoachMePlus.com. Hi guys, thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So, an honour tonight to speak to Mr. Dan Paff. So, welcome to the podcast, Dan. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you, mate. So, um, so for anyone that doesn't know who you are, do you want to give us a little bit of a background? Um, maybe sum up the, four, the, the 43 years in, uh, in a couple of minutes for us. Well, it's been a peripatetic journey, as most coaches experience. Uh, I started out as a high school coach in Ohio and worked up the ranks. I've coached at numerous universities, uh, University of Houston, Wichita State, uh, University of Texas, El Paso, uh, Louisiana State University, LSU, University of Texas, University of Florida, uh, I've been center director for the USOC in Chula Vista, California, and I was center director in London, leading into the London Games at Lee Valley, and currently work at a private training center in Phoenix called Altus. Mm-hmm. So, what's the um, what was the vision? What's what's the vision for Altus? Well, Altus is a private paid center, okay. and. Uh, our goal is to be a resource center for coaches, performance uh, staff, uh, be a home for athletes who may fall through the cracks or are looking for a little different setting. Uh, I think in America, we do a great job from youth sport all the way through university. And then after university, it's kind of barren. So we, we try to fill that gap for kids that may need a few years or um, an athlete that's been injured for a couple of years trying to get back in. 
So, like I said before, when we uh, before we started uh, on Earth, I spoke to Jonas. Um, well, yesterday and today, and it, one of his one of his things that he mentioned was you've got so many mentees who have kind of disappeared into um, into other other sports, but continue to come back to you and and listen to you and look to you for wisdom. Well, why is that, Dan? What what's what what have you offered them over the years uh, as a mentor? Well, I think that. <clears throat> Having been trained as a scientist, uh, I think people that uh, tend to look at sport through science may find it interesting how I look at it. Uh, I think people value uh, expertise and experience, and um, I have plenty of experience. The jury's still out on whether I have expertise, (laughs) but uh, I've been in a few wars and battles, come out to live, uh, to tell the story. Um, now I think people don't feel threatened when they're around our environments. Uh, we have an open door policy and we're very welcoming and there's no question too simple or stupid. Um, the fact that that question exists tells me that, um, it hasn't been addressed properly. So I put out on, uh, as you know, I put out on Twitter for, uh, for questions that that I get you to answer, um, there was a, a bunch of questions from from guys who have been on the podcast themselves, which, like I said to you before, kind of says a lot about uh, you as a as a guy. Uh, but one came from uh, Tom Druce, and forgive me for skipping around. I'm just gonna I'm gonna get through these questions um, through the through the course of the episode. But the first one was uh, your thoughts on training for the 400 meters. So yep. volumes and speeds, and the assumption that you don't uh, want to give your want your sprinters to get too beat up, but does that apply for the more lactic dominant uh, events too? Well, I think each event has unique metrics and uh, landmarks and, and efficiencies and strengths and weaknesses. So, like in four hundred meter running, I think your your first job is to kind of classify the type of athlete you're dealing with. Uh, is it a person that has more enduring qualities and strengths, or is it a person that's coming at it uh, with an exceptional speed reserve values? So we talk about putting guys in certain mailboxes, if you will. So I think the first step is to figure out which mailbox the athlete you got in. Uh, training age and experience would be other big metrics that we would look at. Um, health would be a big one. So if a person's fragile, uh, you know, that will influence some of the philosophy of training. It will definitely influence densities and volumes that you would use. So I don't think there's an easy, simple answer, but I think there's a spectrum of athletes that are attracted to the 400, 400 hurdles. Um, so f- figuring that matrix out would be a first stop for me. So what, when you mentioned fragility, how would you go about figuring out at what spectrum, where they are on that spectrum of fragility? Well, we do a pretty extensive injury uh, history and an analysis. Uh, We do a lot of uh, testing and grids and screens, if you will, uh, when an athlete comes to us. But medical history would be uh, a first very important stop. Uh, Talking to former coaches and trying to get a handle on their ideas on why these injury patterns occurred. You know, we would ask questions whether the injury patterns were acute or chronic. Um, 
So in my opinion, you attack acute very differently from chronic. So those would be some of the, the bigger parameters that we would explore. So another one was, um, which kind of brings me on nicely, was was just to do, um, just to describe the your, your kind of thoughts on the short to long, long to short, which I'm sure is is kind of a standard question that you get asked. But just to add a little bit to that from from Jonas, who thankfully helped me a few a little bit with the questions, was just to say what, what kind of quality an, an athlete may have, which may fit them into one box or the other. Well, I think that. If you're talking about shorter sprints, like 100, 200, or field court sports, uh, I think the demand shift a little bit away from anaerobic glycolysis more into the ATP, PCA, lactic world. And I also think the specificity of training various zones becomes a bigger parameter. So acceleration abilities, starting strength, starting efficiencies, uh, upright sprinting and speed qualities and the abilities to go through the various zones of the race uh, become very important parameters. Uh, again, short to long, long to short, you know, it's what kind of athlete do you have? Is this person more of a 200 runner who dabbles in the 100? Uh, is this a, a runner that has to move up and run 400s at times or possibly run on 4 by 4 relays? So there's a lot of questions you have to answer before you uh, refine the, the philosophy you're going to have with an individual athlete. I would say I have a tendency to be more short to long because I think that uh, starting efficiencies and starting strength and acceleration mechanics and abilities and power needs and uh, upright sprinting and speed zones uh, are pretty important and they demand a lot of attention year round. Uh, so I think at the end of the day, you identify KPIs, key performance indicators for that athlete in that event discipline, and then you rank them in a hierarchy. And the higher hierarchy KPIs have to have more attention, probably more density in your programming. And from there you build out. Um, I think looking at it just from a long to short or short to long is a little bit myopic. I think it's way more involved in that. So you mentioned uh, speed, strength, and, and strength speed a little bit in that. In that, well, you mentioned them in the in the previous answer, but do you just want to give us a little bit of an insight into your <clears throat> into your thoughts on um, the kind of importance of of maximal strength training in for your for your shorter range athletes, your your hundred meter athletes? Well, I think that. You know, if you study the biomechanics, the, the ability to apply force and accelerate that first step is a very critical factor. So absolute strength or starting strength could be a high parameter. But that said, there are certain prototypes of athletes where it's not as big of a, a factor. So you have guys like Kim Collins, Andre DeGrasse, that are not tremendous absolute strength athletes, but yet they can run under 10 seconds. So I think some people have lost the plot a little bit and gone overboard with absolute strength or um, you know high power indices during drive phase and acceleration phases. Um, the art of coaching sprints is, is, like I said, ordering these KPIs for this individual. Some sprinters are built and have constitutions more like a greyhound, 
where, you know, other guys look like they just came off the rugby pitch. So figuring out the type of athlete that you got is pretty important. So obviously over the last couple of years has been a, uh, a marked shift in the, the kind of the, like you said, the, the build of a hundred meter sprinter from the kind of Maurice Green, the smaller, stockier, uh, more muscular uh, sprinter to the obviously the like you said the Kim Collins, the the leaner athlete. What what? Why do you think that is over the last fifteen years? Well, I think the wheel of history just keeps turning. Uh, if you look, go back through time, the beauty of. The 100 meters, 200 meters, they come in all sizes and shapes. And they have, in recent modern times, if you go back to the 36 Olympics and look at the start line in the 100 meters, there's quite a few body prototypes in that race. So just to just to move on to uh, another question, again, um, coming from a past uh, podcast guest in Ian McKeough at, at Port Adelaide. Yep. So it was just... Yes, it was just um, use of uh, Franz Bosch's methods, um, and I, I just added maybe a little a bit of a summary and how you interpret his work um, and how you may integrate it or or don't. Um, kind of a trap question. Um, <laughs> Your friend stitched you up, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's obvious to anybody that's read Franz's work or heard him speak or whatnot. I think he's a you know, a very brilliant guy who promotes a lot of thinking and discussion. Um, I personally, uh, you know, unless I'm unaware of it, don't have a lot of his type of programming and thought in my programming. Um, I think that, and I'll be honest and upfront. I've never attended one of his lectures, and I've only read pieces of his writing. So you know, it's probably not a fair uh, assessment of what he's about or what he thinks or how he thinks. Uh, some of the guys on our staff here at Altus, though, are uh, students of Franz's work and have integrated some of his stuff. So maybe something got lost in the translation or the integration. Uh, but it's, it's kind of a concern I have, you know, with drills or adaptive training exercises, things of that nature, is they supply context. And for some of the population, that context is a positive. Uh, for other parts of the population, it may be a negative. And as with any isolated teaching methods or drills or teaching progressions, um, there's a shelf life to these things. And there's a point where... Uh, cost-benefit analysis of doing them and the integration into the whole and the actualization under real-time uh, movements uh, come up lacking. So while he could have very valid and useful tools, I think to get stuck in just building programming around those tools or having them formulate the bulk of your programming of various menu item subcategories uh, may not be always the wisest thing to do. So why do why do you think it's it's become so popular? What's what has kind of lured people into to his way of thinking? Well, I think he's great at challenging thought and existing paradigms. I think he writes well. I think he presents well. Um. I think anybody that's been in the business uh, three or four decades have seen a lot of uh, 
interesting concepts and paradigms come to the fore and then fade, you know, a decade later. I'm not saying this will or won't, but from the vantage point of 40 plus years, I've seen a lot of magic bullets come down the pipe. Um, the second one from John, which was ways to optimize athlete buy-in and feedback. Well, I think um, feedback uh, probably a lot of times in current literature and discussions and whatnot centers around external internal cueing, um, mass and distributive practice of feedback, and um, you know what kind of relationships are built and the evolution of those relationships and how feedback evolves during said evolution. So those are big cornerstones that we look at in trying to ascertain types, amount, and evolution of feedback with uh, athletes in our program. So when, when, a, um, when a new athlete comes into your, into your training center, what is, the, what is the kind of the first thing that happens when they get through the door with regards to, with regards to getting that, obviously you're dealing with high level athletes uh, over there, but to get that athlete buy-in? Well, I think buy-in comes from education, understanding the process and the components, understanding the roles of all people involved, whether it's performance staff or a direct lead coach in your event and the athlete and the people around the athlete, like family and people that have influence, perhaps agents and sponsors. So getting everybody on the same page and, and conversing in the jargon and um, getting agreement on the, the mission, vision. Um, a lot of it's just evolutionary of all of these entities through time. Uh, we do an extensive induction with athletes, and from that induction, uh, we can kind of figure out some basic strategies and, and, and logistics for implementing this. Um, but it is a process, and it varies. Um, I wouldn't say it's very visual. I think athletes fall into various mailboxes and how they process feedback or desire feedback. Um, you know, one end of the spectrum is very defensive, very under-reporting to the other end of the spectrum, like way too dependent on it, almost robotic, uh, parrot-like existence of the athlete. Is, is there a situation where you would, would you attempt to drag one athlete from one end of that spectrum to the other? Or is it just working with that athlete where they're where they're placed on that on the spectrum itself? Well, we're not afraid to coach, teach, or lead here. So if we think that the behavior and outlook of that athlete is faulty, and it's part of the crux on why they're failing or getting injured or inconsistent, then we're going to point that out and come up with a battle plan uh, to try to shift that. Uh, the art of coaching is figuring out where people are and determining, you know, timelines and landmarks for shifting to more efficient uh, operational behaviors. So you mentioned the the kind of support team around these athletes. How how involved do you get them? Are you are you bringing them in and and sitting around a table and kind of everyone's having their their say, or is that going to the athlete? which is then getting passed on to the support team or how are you, how are you creating that, um, that communication? Well, it depends on the level of knowledge.
knowledge and understanding of the athlete and uh, finances of that athlete. How big a team do they want to build? What can they afford? Uh, previous history with performance staffs and teams. There's a lot of variables that go into the determination of the game plan for that athlete in that given year. Uh, so, you know, a first-year athlete coming right out of university who's been very undereducated on these things, you're going to progress and evolve at a lot different rate and a lot simpler complexity than you would if a 30-year-old three-time Olympian came into your center uh, with a lot of positive and negative experiences and performance staff environments. But communication and cooperation I think is essential at high-level sport. If if all of the stakeholders aren't on the same page, uh, you're compromised out of the gate. Is there, is there any athlete, this is just from a, a personal point of view, just to, uh, just from, from, from my interest, is there any athlete over the last 48, 43 years that's that's just kind of thrown themselves into into the program so much that has um, – that has kind of stood out and and kind of given the given the life to to, to what you you guys are you personally have been offering anyone that stands out no not really i'm okay. you, i get asked this all the time who's your favorite <laughs> sorry athlete? sorry your favorite food <laughs> kind of not a favorite guy it's yeah. like each each experience is pretty unique and yeah. special um you know i could probably rank a few but uh then I, I, you know, I'm kind of getting old and I forget people. And as soon as I rank somebody, I'll remember somebody. So yeah. I'm going to dodge that one. Uh, that's cool, man. That's cool. Um, so next one was uh, was from Chris Toomes. And it was just to touch on, obviously, he'd been over there to to spend some time with you guys. Um, and he obviously, this had obviously um, made a big impact. And he thought it was it'd be good for you to share. was about the athlete coach therapist triad. Yeah. You just want to talk to us a little bit through that? Yeah, well, I mean, let's be honest, in sport, uh, injury or chronic illness are usually uh, the big barriers to have it happening on the day. And real early in the game, I kind of, I'm kind of a systems fractal pattern looking coach. And I've, I kind of came up that there were four big triggers for, you know, chronic injury or acute injury or illness or biochemical problems. And those areas were programming, you know, so my part in it, you know, how I design programs and the athlete's feedback that influenced the programming and maybe outside parties that were involved in that process. Uh, the mechanics, the mechanics are not only their event, the mechanics on every menu item they do, whether it's in the weight room or plyometric training or um, ancillary exercises or whatever. So technique and programming were two real big ones. And then as I got in the game longer and longer, I was like, well, lifestyle is pretty important. So what's sleep hygiene, diet, nutrition, uh, managing stress, coping strategies, self-talk, uh, mental resilience, those kinds of things. And then as I got in deeper, better, more elaborate systems, sports medicine became kind of a fourth component. And you would think sports medicine would help the cause, but in a lot of cases, it actually hinders the cause. So our first stop is how can we influence those four big metrics in a positive way? And I felt like the athlete, 
and the performance staff and the coach uh, form kind of a triangle that these items float through and should be influenced through. So uh, I think, you know, uh, a therapist or sports medicine is just one leg at that three stool may be a bit restrictive. It would include all performance staff members on that third leg, whether it's sports psych or nutritionist or, you know, cognitive behavior therapist, what have you. So performance staff, athlete, and coach to me are the three legs of the stool. <clears throat> so when you talk about um, sub therapist, what what's the what's the role of the the manual therapist, the the kind of massage and things like that 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 may go into um, into that that kind of triangle that you talk about? What's what's their role in this in this bigger picture? Well. We kind of look at athletes like F1 race cars, so we know that athletes um, have an injury history. They come to us with some cases acute injuries that have never really been addressed properly, or they may bring a chronic injury history to us. So our job is to figure out how much asymmetry is permissible for that given day or menu item and uh, where's the tipping point where maybe we need to change the program that day to a, a plan B or C or in some cases maybe even omit the training day. Uh, so our therapists wear many hats and have many avenues of input into uh, the daily program, the weekly program, the cycles that we use. Uh, one of my pet peeves is training gaps. I think a lot of sports medicine people don't understand training gaps. So um, very clinical or, you know, perhaps uh, classic PT driven where these kids are taken out of complex training environments and put into rehabilitation type environments. And during that process and timeline, a lot of training entities uh, decline or uh, degrade. So we work really hard at keeping plan B as close to plan A as possible. So that's a lot of pressure on sports medicine people is, you know, what can we get away with today and do no harm? It's kind of the Hippocratic Oath. So one, one question that leads quite nicely into that um, from Greg Lehman was, can therapy become, well, before training um, for the athlete, be, uh, give a sense of reliance to the athlete? Well, I think it can. Uh, I, I think entity, any entity that you undertake can build dependencies. But, you know, being a devil's advocate, you know, we want the athlete in the best possible condition for that race or that workout. So it's a balancing act. And um, some cases that you inherit may be so drastic, so long-standing, that it's really about management. You're never going to fix the problem. You're just going to manage it. If you have a big management case in front of you, th there's going to be dependency. It's just inherent. And if that's what it takes to get on the podium at the Olympics, I'm prepared to do that. Uh, I don't understand this this movement, we don't want athletes dependent on sports medicine. I, if that's what it takes to get on the podium, that's what it takes. So one, one, um, the next question is uh, is kind of a big one. Uh, actually, I'll, I'll just I'll before I hit on that one, I'll just kind of rewind it and just ask you to can just just talk to us about your philosophy 
um, as a, as a whole, maybe just in a couple of minutes, and then I'll I'll get on to the the next question, which again talks about um, maybe a next step. Just a little bit, bit a little bit about your philosophy, Dan, and maybe just in a like I say, in a couple of minutes. Well, I believe that coaching is teaching, so pedagogy and the study of pedagogy for me is very very important. Uh, as classically trained as a science. Uh, person, so science is important. But that said, you know, we all know science has its uh, dark secrets and blind spots. Um, I believe in building huge networks of expertise and in a wide variety of sports, sport disciplines, sciences, management, uh, logistics. Um, I believe super strongly that the pursuit of knowledge. Uh, is critical for all parties involved in the sporting process. Uh, the love of learning uh, has to be a foundational tenet in, in the people that I spend time with. Um, I value honesty and, and sound reporting. Um, huge believer in debriefs and the quality of debriefs and letting those debriefs have a huge influence on um, everything that's involved in the daily task. So, so the next question that I was going to come on to was, was how your philosophy applies to, to team sport athletes? Well, it's the same. Obviously, when you work with large groups, uh, you, you have to change uh, strategies and logistics sometimes. Um, I've never had the luxury of just coaching one athlete or just a handful of athletes. Uh, my whole career has been massive settings. Um, you know, some years I may have 75 active athletes that uh, I'm in charge of. So you have to develop uh, management techniques and scheduling techniques uh, where you get down to smaller groups. And in smaller groups, um, you have to have the ability to, to mailbox and build groups where there's commonalities for observation and training emphasis. So for me, large group uh, high performance is not much different than small group. It's more about how you manage, direct, and, and use and influence staff and how critical debriefing and reporting comes. I think in larger groups, uh, debriefing and reporting becomes way more important um, than perhaps it would in a smaller group where you're constantly getting that um, unbespoken. So just maybe want to touch on how you would, obviously with with acceleration being a, such a key um, premise in, in especially team sports, rugby, football or soccer, um, we just want to talk to us a little bit, little bit about how your teaching um, and progressions would differ in maybe a, the short time that these guys in in these kind of sports get compared to the the track athletes that you work with. Well, I think there's two big um, barriers in field and court sport that you don't have in track and field, and that's one is event specific uh, task. So like an American football or uh, an interior lineman, a long run for them might be 10 yards, five yards. Um, and European football or rugby, you know, certain positions spend more time upright sprinting than in other positions. Um, work to rest ratios are obviously different. Um, do, they do they encounter opponents? So in a lot of sports, 
you may accelerate for two or three steps and then you have to do some sort of uh, hand fighting or change in direction to clear an opponent. But the principles and the, ex and the essentials of accelerating and running still exist. And it's been my experience of athletes don't know the components and the metrics of starting and accelerating and decelerating and change in direction. They're going to be fairly limited in their skill sets and injury risk are going to increase exponentially. Well, Dan, just just to just before I finish off, who just to go back a couple of questions, and you mentioned uh, people that have they've influenced you. Who who are the guys that, that influence you at the minute? Well, Coach Tom Telez was probably my most influential mentor. He was a coach of Carl Lewis and Leroy Burrell, guys like that. I spent two years as a grad student studying under him, so it was kind of like Einstein every day. <laughs> um, numerous friends and colleagues uh, through the years, and then new guys I meet every day. Um, I love learning. I love knowledge, and I'm intrigued by people who are sincere and passionate. So guys like yourself and what you're doing with your company and uh, I'm influenced by a lot of people who are honest and sincere, humble, and uh, really getting after it, trying to find answers and help kids. Mm -hmm. Well, that's perfect, Dan. So where can people keep in touch with well, what you've got going on personally and, and what Altus are doing? Well, Altus has a pretty big media presence on yeah. Facebook and Twitter, yeah. so uh, it's pretty easy to follow us there. Um I'm too old for a lot of this stuff, so I basically retweet or if one of my athletes is standing beside me, I, I need to say something, they'll do it for me. <laughs> I think I'm the wrong generation for social media. Yeah. So you run quite a big um, like internship mentorship program down at Altis? Yes, we do. Get, okay. So just want to just give us a little bit of an insight into the kind of things that some of the people that have they've asked questions, so uh, Maccas and, and Chris Toombs have both been through. Yeah, well, what we did, you know, well, like we said earlier in the in the program here, we tried to be a resource center, an open door center where people can come and get questions answered or observe, you know, an approach, a hypothesis for high performance. I, I've never claimed to have the answer or the only method, but we have a pretty talented group of people on staff here and you know, it's kind of nice to stand beside people and see, you know, what they're doing, <clears throat> talk directly to the athletes and the coaches at real time. And we encourage people when they're here, audit us, you know, talk to the athletes, talk to the performance staff people and see if what we propose and say we're doing, we're actually doing. I think practitioners today are swimming in knowledge with internet and symposiums and workshops and whatnot, but the application uh, and, and the refinement to essentialism, I think, is lacking. So that's one of the gaps we're trying to fill in is to give people experience on uh, what's really going on in a world-class setting for a week or however long they stay uh, with, you know, open door to any question or observation. And a lot of times these questions can affect and change practice because, as I said, it's an audit. We may be blinded uh, with our data or our biases, and if enough people ask the question, then we as a staff have to sit down and say, wait a minute, you know, we're getting a lot of feedback on this area, or are we really doing this right? 
So is there anything that kind of stands out that's that's come uh, from people, from from the people that are visiting to spend some time with you that's made you and your team kind of change your practice? Yeah, one of the most common things is we uh, we are lacking in technology. They don't see a lot of the bells and whistles. Some of that is being a, a young company with a young budget, if you will. Mm-hmm. And then some of it is, you know, my, my feeling on technology is who is the gatekeeper uh, on this uh, data. And so probably the most common comment we get is about technology and how they don't see a lot of it. Uh, we do collect data. Uh, a lot of it's old school where we use a tape measure and a stopwatch. Um, and so that's confounding to a lot of the younger coaches. <laughs> so if there, if there was uh, a couple of bits of tech that you would get your hands on if the, if the budget was there, what, what would it be and, and why, why would you get it? Well, I think a lot of it would would be dependent on on cost and what we feel if it would add value. Um, I have a lot of friends and a lot of pro franchises collecting tons of data. And when I talk to them about how it's being utilized, crunched, and disseminated, uh, I'm not getting great answers. <laughs> no, that kind of that probably sums it up. Sums it up, Dan. To be honest, but so so yeah. Um, I just want to. I don't want to keep you too long. Um, so I just want to thank you for your time for giving up forty minutes on a on a uh, Thursday evening or Thursday afternoon for you. So um, thanks very much for your time, Dan. Well, I appreciate it. Like I said earlier, I really respect what you guys are doing um, over there with these podcasts and trying to move sport forward. So happy to help anytime. Perfect. Thank you, Dan. And uh, we'll keep in touch. And uh, yeah, thank you very much again. All right. Have a great week. You too, mate. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to episode 87 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you got plenty out of the the last 40 minutes with Dan. Uh, It was great to get such a legend on on the podcast. So just before I let you go, I want to say a massive thanks to both Coach Me Plus and Kevin in particular for providing uh, the little segment in in the intro on questionnaires. Also massive thanks to Val Performance, the makes the Nord board uh, for also sponsoring the podcast today. So some great guests coming up over the next couple of weeks. Uh, thanks again for your support. Uh, and I look forward to speaking to you soon.